Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we're speaking with Lindsay Boyle, founder and strategist at Circular Citizen Consulting. Before this role, Lindsay was a market insight innovation consultant for some of the world's most people-centric and trusted brands, including Google, Netflix, The North Face, Mountain Equipment Co-op, and Whole Foods. Lindsay started Circular Citizen in 2019 with a commitment to advance the transition to a circular, equitable, and regenerative economy. Circular Citizen helps companies with circular business models understand their target audiences so they can encourage more people to support and participate in the circular economy. Today, we'll explore the circular economy, a first-time subject for Voices of Nature, and talk about how a circular innovation mindset creates new regenerative models, such as the work of the Sandown Center for Regenerative Agriculture, where Lindsay is the board president. Lindsay, welcome to Voices of Nature. Thanks so much, Bob. It's great to be talking with you today. So why don't we just start with a, kind of an introductory question? Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your background and explain to us what started your passion for fostering ways that we can live more in harmony with nature? Well, my background as a, a little kid who grew up in a pretty rural area that is a wonderful growing region, sort of like the Mediterranean on southern Vancouver Island. And so I was surrounded by nature, surrounded by incredible vegetable garden that my parents grew, surrounded by arbutus trees and Gary Oak meadows. And I spent a lot of time being really dirty, being, you know, in mud and soil. And, you know, that's sort of my early childhood experience. And I'm mentioning that because I'm going to come back to that later in the conversation when we talk to San about Sandown Center for Regenerative Agriculture. But as a professional, my background was really at big companies who need to understand their customers better. And there's usually a function called market research or consumer insights at big companies. And most of my career has been dedicated to understanding people in order for companies to create new products or services for them or communicate about their products and services in a way that people really understand. And generally, we refer to this as innovation and marketing, and we're using market insight to really guide the strategies and tactics of big companies. And that's really been my professional, you know, the majority of my professional career. So when you say guide big companies. I mean, what does that actually look like in practice? You have these insights. How does that translate into some kind of action by the company? Well, it's usually the distillation of complex data sets or transcripts of 
conversations that we have with customers of these big companies. And it's really the distilling down of maybe 99 insights and distilling that into nine things that really articulate what the greatest unmet needs are for for people. And those are what the company should focus on in terms of the development of a product or a service. You know, that's really strategy work, but it's very grounded in being centric, you know, people centric and using psychology and sociology and cultural understanding to say, this is an opportunity space. You know, this is something that people need or want. And so in this opportunity space, are you seeing more opportunities for investments in and innovation in things that kind of connect people in nature or products that are made more with, you know, the natural resources in mind, the cost of using nature to make these things in mind? Well, I am now, absolutely. But if you backtrack to about 2018, I actually went through quite a dark reckoning period where I really wasn't seeing any investment or recognition of the need to innovate for nature, um, to be nature positive. And, you know, I actually remember working very, very hard as a consultant and long hours and feeling like I was giving my all and not seeing any opportunity to work on projects that would benefit the ocean, for example, yet the ocean was in tremendous peril, um, you know, from everything that I was reading and, and seeing about climate change. And so I remember, I think it was in January 2018, I posted kind of an angry rant on LinkedIn saying innovation is a top search word on LinkedIn. I mean, everyone's talking about innovation, but where is the innovation for the ocean? And I just was not in the right network. And so I just, I wasn't seeing anyone talk about anything that was being done to help address the massive challenges of nature and of the natural world. And so that's actually what led me to start looking for solutions and start trying to connect to new networks. And that's how I discovered the circular economy. Well, before we get to the circular economy, let me ask you one more question about your background. You indicated that 2018 was a bit of this watershed moment. So what has changed in, frankly, a relatively short period of time between 2018 and now 2022, where you seem to indicate that you know companies are now innovating for nature and much more willing to think about nature and how they innovate? Well, I think what's changed for me, is the understanding of the circular economy as a framework. And I know you said you didn't want to quite get there, but really, I'm a strategist. I really love good frameworks to help make sense of a lot of insights, a lot of data, where you're just trying to take the complex and make it simple and provide a a roadmap of where to go and what to focus on. And I think... um, you know, that's really, to me, what's changed because once I understood that framework, then I knew what to look for. And then I knew who to connect to. 
And then I knew what companies to interrogate or really look at what they were doing in their supply chains, for example. So I think I think also, sadly, the imperative has been made much more clear from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their reports that have increasingly been calling it a code red for humanity as a result of the loss of biodiversity and the threats to nature and people as a result of worsening climate change. So I think for me, it's personally that I've been connected to these new networks through the circular economy, but also, you know, that climate change is not under dispute any longer for the most part. And companies are committing to net zero goals. And in the best case scenarios, they're committing to nature positive business strategies and really seeing that they have a huge potential to make an impact in a positive way on nature. All right, let's go there. Let's go talk about the circular economy now. Excellent. What, <laughs> I think what we could all use is a bit of circular economy 101. So what is it? Why is it important? Why is it so essential to meeting some of the code red challenges that you just articulated and because I, I'll be honest, I'm starting to worry that words like circularity, concepts like circular economy are on the verge of becoming buzzwords that imply a lot of things, but not necessarily the rigor and the substance that are needed to fundamentally shift how we kind of produce and consume goods in society. 100% agree with your concern. And my passion and enthusiasm for this topic is really deep. But when I have had conversations about it, often I will be reminded not to use jargon or not to use the circular economy without properly explaining the context and the definition of it. So it's a really important place to start. So I like to explain the circular economy as three principles. So the first is to design out waste and pollution, which also is carbon emissions, but also toxic materials. So the first principle is really to design those things out of systems so they never even are in systems. So it's really that design principle that we start with. So by that, Lindsay, you mean designing systems that are much more efficient, much more less, they pollute less, they waste less, right? I mean, so they're just, they're cleaner, they're more they're resource safer. efficient. They're safer from the very safer beginning. for people, yes. Yeah. Okay. And then the second principle is to keep products and materials in use at their highest value. So that means practices like reuse of products, repair of products, refurbishing of, of products. Those are the best way to keep materials in use at their highest value. That doesn't mean grinding things up into tiny bits and 
you know, melting them down in and down cycling them. Um, you know, the circular economy really must not be thought of as recycling on steroids or just a better waste management system. So we're talking about those most powerful ways to keep things in use are again, reuse, repair, rental, and then you know refurbishing things so that they can be continued to be used again and again. So is that something like, you know, instead of going out and buying a new iPhone, you take it to the Apple store, you get a new battery, and you're able to extend the life of your older iPhone for another couple of years. Absolutely. That, okay. Yes. Great example. And since the average length of time a phone is used is two years, that's a really good example of how if we think about ways that we can make phones more repairable so that they could have an average life of five years, that's really what we're talking about in terms of the circular economy. And then the last principle is regenerate nature. And, you know, this is to me one of the most inspiring principles because it really starts to challenge our assumptions of the role of business and the economy and thinking about ways that nature can be not only brought into the equation and the consciousness of companies, but also actively regenerated, you know, instead of being degenerated or destroyed in the process or in aid of producing and manufacturing goods and services. Can you give us an example of a company that is operating with a regenerative business model in mind? This is so in some ways, probably your listeners are going to think, of course, she uses Patagonia as an example. But this part of Patagonia is maybe not as commonly known. And it is, to me, such an inspiring example of Patagonia Provisions partnered with a craft brewery in Oregon. And the provisions part of Patagonia is focused on food. And they thought about how the ingredients of beer, in this case, an ale, were made. And what could they do to use a grain that could actually regenerate nature? So traditional grains are annuals. So they're grown and then when they're ready to be harvested for beer making, they would be dug out of the earth, which releases a lot of carbon, you know, kind of disturbing the soil to harvest them, you know, releases carbon into the atmosphere, which is what we do not want. It's the opposite of what we want. But Patagonia worked with this brewery to say, let's create a, a beer out of a grain called Kernza. And Kernza is a perennial. So that means that you harvest the grain to make the beer, but the roots of that plant stay in the soil and they leave the soil undisturbed. 
which means the carbon can be retained in the soil and the biodiversity can be retained in the soil by those roots that are prolonged, you know, they're basically staying put and contributing and regenerating the soil. And so Patagonia has branded this beer. It's called the Long Root Ale. And apparently it's delicious. I have not tried it myself, but it looks fantastic if anyone wants to Google Long Root Ale. It's a wit beer. And I just absolutely love that example in terms of this framework, which puts regenerate nature as an imperative into the economy and with some creativity and partnership and collaboration between this brewery and Patagonia Provisions, they're able to create an innovation. That is really cool. Why don't you to now take us to the, the Sandown Center for Regenerative Agriculture, since you are you started talking about regenerative agriculture and, and you're doing some amazing work there. So why don't you take us, take us into the, the Sandown Center a little bit? I would love to. It's truly the topic and the part of my work that makes me feel most hopeful and excited about the future. And it was actually that Patagonia example that really embedded the circular economy into my way of thinking, into my consciousness. And it was in 2019 when I was approached to help create a proposal for a local government to create a use for 83 acres of what was previously a racetrack, so a horse racetrack. And the district had goals of wanting to use that site for food production, for teaching and learning of growing food, and ultimately, I think, food security for the district where I grew up uh, that I was telling you about at the beginning of the podcast. Is this, and, your, is this your connection to loving to be dirty as a kid? Or get yes. All right. Yes. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I remember the racetrack uh, being at the site that is now the Sandown Center for Regenerative Agriculture. It had, you know, quite a, you know, really big track for horses and for horse and cart racing. There's a really big Gary Oak that kind of shades part of the racetrack or did shade part of the racetrack. There's a big parking lot area. And I remember going there as a six-year-old and we would make $2 bets on horses. My cousin won $13 on a horse one time. And it was like the most exciting day of my six-year-old life. That seemed like a lot of money. And so, you know, it was a part of our community, but really as the demand for horse racing waned, you know, the family looked to sell that land and the district purchased it. And, and really the kind of the fallout from having, you know, that kind of park cars parked on that site and, and horses on it and buildings on it, you know, really left that site quite in poor shape. You know, the soil is very compacted. The biology is broken in the soil there. So it is not prime agricultural land at all. And really at the time that we are 
you know, it really is, there's so much greater need in the community to use that land, which once was, you know, for entertainment for the community, you know, we really now with climate change and threatened food security, we need to figure out how to help people learn to grow food regeneratively in our region. And we also really needed, and this was part of the proposal that I worked on, we really needed to find a solution to dwindling farmers under 35. You know, the majority of farmers in our region are 65 or older. Many of them are retiring and not that many people are able to buy land. It's unaffordable to buy land in our region to farm. And there's a lot about the farming lifestyle that is pretty unattractive to younger generations. You know, solitary work, very difficult, long hours, not that much uh, in terms of compensation. And it, you know, it doesn't really align with millennial ways of working and networking and, and collaborating. So, you know, we really needed to find a way in our proposal to kind of support the next generation of farmers and regenerative agriculture really just seemed to be the, the answer to everything, you know, the answer to climate change you know, in terms of changing from conventional farming and chemical farming in particular, which is so damaging and so much a, you know, contributor to climate change and depleted soils. And, but we also needed to figure out this social question too. How do we make younger people want to farm? So how do you make younger people want to farm? Well, our proposal really was that, you know, we needed to we needed to create a model where we could first of all you know focus on the climate change issues and address the issues of climate change on food security that we have droughts and flooding in our region that are really threatening you know traditional agriculture i'm not sure if how much your listeners will be familiar with some of the massive flooding in the largest agricultural area in British Columbia in the west coast of Canada. Abbotsford, Chilliwack uh, are truly kind of the top growing areas in our province. And um, last fall, were hit with a massive flood and lost a lot of their topsoil and a lot of their ability to, to produce food, which completely disrupted supply chains. And so, you know, by really thinking of, you know, how do we think of the climate change threats and think of the opportunity of changing how you farm. That's where regenerative agriculture really becomes the answer. And I had no idea to what extent it really is the answer. When I was writing this proposal in 2019, I really knew like, you know, the tiny, tiny amount, but it, it just seemed like it was it was a possibility, you know, Project Drawdown talks about it as a, an opportunity to address problems with agricultural system, with monocropping, with chemical fertilizer use. And so we knew it was a solution to climate change and to a lot of problems with the industrial food system. So that was kind of the core of, you know, how do we focus on teaching people that and then how also do we create, you know, remove the barriers for younger people who want to farm, but just 
it's not accessible to them. And so our model on this 83 acres of field, forest, and wetland is to provide small plots of land for farmpreneurs, we call them, to start their farm businesses. And they're they're doing it in a network. They're supported by mentors in terms of a farm manager, as well as other soil scientists that are guest, basically guest teachers. They also are taught business skills and ways of thinking about building their brand, you know, as a farm and as a food producer. They are sharing resources, you know, sharing a greenhouse, they're sharing the use of tools and equipment, and they're really sharing this growing body of knowledge around what regenerative agriculture is for our region and how to regenerate the soil specifically on this pretty damaged site, but they're doing it in a way that's together and that's supported as opposed to trying to be out in the field on their own facing all these challenges and existential threats from climate change, they're doing it together, you know, in this cohort and learning from each other and learning from the more experienced farmers and the soil scientists who are on site, really learning about how to make that site in particular regenerate and, you know, become a healthy ecosystem again. But I, I guess I have to ask you this question, and I, I don't mean to sound negative or imply a high degree of negativity, but it's it's something I struggled with mightily in my book of how do we create markets for products made with sustainability considerations in mind, which is how do we scale these wonderful ideas and this passion to things that are actually going to transform the economy, right? I mean, the, the Sandown Center is amazing. Like you've sold me on it. You've sold me on regenerative agriculture. What Patagonia is doing is awesome. But we're talking hundreds, maybe thousands of acres of land when the entire agricultural economy is still based on, in this case, chemical farming. Mm -hmm. Like how do we how do we start to change that then? And and do so quickly, to be honest, because we're we're kind of running out of time. Well, I, I mean it's a great question, but I do feel like there's the carrot and there's the stick. You know, I think, you know, up until now, maybe it's been, we've been trying to use the carrot to encourage bigger companies um, or more at scale innovation or commitment and investment in regenerative agriculture. But, you know, I really think that a significant amount of the world's soils are very depleted. And I don't want to use the word dead because, Actually, you know, regenerative agriculture and the circular economy are are very new, old solutions. Actually, they're very much based on the principles of nature and indigenous ways of thinking about the interconnectedness of everything. And so, it's definitely an indigenous way of thinking. Discouraged to think of anything as dead, and definitely not to think of soil as dead. But what has happened is that the soil is very much out of balance. The depletion means that the biology is broken in soils in many, many parts of the world, meaning that yields are going down, meaning that uh, the topsoil is very much at risk of flooding 
taking away all of the topsoil with it or droughts literally, you know, rendering it impossible to, to grow anything. And so I really think that supply chains are starting to truly have to, you know, balance sheets are having to calculate in risk of, you know, lack of water, for example, and that the supply chains are just no longer able to supply the produce that some of these big companies need because of the threats from climate change. And the positive is that when you grow regeneratively and you have soil that's in balance where the biology is working, that's rich in bacteria and fungi and all the, you know, incredible life that, you know, is included in soil that is, is healthy, that soil has the ability to retain water. So it's helpful both in a drought because it's able to retain water and able to therefore grow things, even if there's less rain falling, but it's also able to withstand flooding. So it's basically there's water that's retained in it, which means it's less susceptible to being swept away by major flooding events like the one I mentioned in our region last year. So these are the the things that are the realities of the regenerative agriculture business model is if you are farming in this way, as opposed to farming, which really focuses on biodiversity. I haven't really talked about kind of what the practices are for regenerative agriculture, but, you know, it really focuses on not monocropping everything and having many different plants and crops and trees and working in combination with, you know, wetlands in proximity or forests in proximity um, as healthy kind of ecosystems. Uh, Sandown, we have 115 species of birds and eight species of bats. And we're really trying to bring that, those numbers even higher because we know that that is what creates a resilient place to grow food. And, you know, the big fields that you're talking about where these big companies have been reliant on getting their produce from, create their products and services, make their granola or make their, you know, frozen lasagnas, those are no longer reliable places to expect food to come from because of climate change. So then how can we, I guess, help this transition along, right? Even if we're not a a farmer or a farmpreneur, as you said before. What role can all of us play in this? Well, I do think it's looking for ways to get to know the people in your community that are growing food. I I do think that is the first thing to get curious about and, you know, ask how are they growing? You know, regenerative, biodynamic, you know, Organic for sure, you know, is kind of definitely a really important part of how local are kind of our own local food systems are, you know, starting to to work towards and growing, you know, growers that are working towards those things are starting to collect data on 
their yields, you know, that their yields are going up and their costs are going down and they aren't reliant on fertilizer from Russia because they don't use any chemical fertilizers. So by getting curious and trying to have actual experiences with the farmers and conversations with the farmers in your area and asking them what's going well for you in, in this type of growing, what's what are the benefits you're seeing, that is where I think the stories are going to start to sink in for people. And I do think the other part of it is, is looking for other brands, larger brands that are committing, seriously committing to funding regenerative agriculture, you know, is another very meaningful contribution where people can put their dollar where it matters, but you need to be able to cut through the greenwash And one place I definitely look is where are brands that are actually committing to the kind of transition of farmers to be able to move towards regenerative agriculture. And so there's a, there's a company called Soil Heroes that's only in the UK or in Europe right now, but basically they are helping brands like All Plants, which is a company that makes plant-based meal kits that you get delivered to your door all vegan, all plant-based, and they are paying into Soil Heroes business model where they provide financial support for farmers that are transitioning to regenerative agriculture and all plants benefits because they're guaranteed in their supply chain to have regenerative agriculture, which is significantly positive for all the reasons we've been talking about in terms of climate change mitigation and adaptation, you know, regenerating nature. But there's also new science that's showing that food grown regeneratively is the highest nutrient content. So it has the highest nutrient density and it has the highest bricks of sugar. So it, that means it tastes the best. So I'm recognizing that this is happening at a grassroots level, which is the best way for people to experience it and taste what I mean, like taste the difference, you know, be involved directly to have your own experience. But there are also bigger brands that are investing in regenerative agriculture. I just think we want to be careful of what you talked about at the beginning, Bob, which is there are some brands that may be co-opting this in a way that is actually greenwashing as opposed to actually supporting farmers. And that is definitely a a concern to make that distinction. So it's really looking at the the companies that are engaging their business model to support, in this case, regenerative agriculture, direct financial support, giving markets to farmers, helping support farmers, rather than just simply paying lip service to it, you you actually need to see the time and the resources being committed by these companies to, to trust that they're they're committed to making a difference and to hopefully scaling scaling some of these positive changes. Absolutely. And you know, I think we haven't talked about the practices of regenerative agriculture yet. And it, it does differ between regions, but generally, you know, the practices are no monocropping. So not to be growing things just all in one crop, like only almonds or only corn, 
to be growing in a way that kind of combines different types of fruits and vegetables and trees and, you know, cover crops. So they they all work together. It's also a commitment uh, to not use chemical inputs. So not introducing harmful Roundup or other, you know, things that cause cancer basically in the growing. Then there's also, you know, a commitment to keeping roots in the soil, kind of like what I spoke about with that perennial grain, Kernza, keeping roots in the soil and also using integrating livestock into the basically rotational pasture grazing. So having animals that are participating by pooping on the, on the land to increasing the the kind of that natural biology that comes from fertilizing naturally through manure. And then I'm probably missing one, but there's also low till or no till, which means not churning up the land and, and the soil and releasing a lot of carbon. So these are, you know, practices and I mentioned cover cropping, but trying not to leave the land bare, but covering it with things like oats or clover, which again, keep the natural biology and kind of carbon balance in the soil. And it's like a bank account. You really want to try to keep what you have in there as opposed to do practices uh, like tilling or uh, leaving the land bare, which allows the carbon to escape into the atmosphere. So these are the types of practices. And again, I'm, I'm very aware with your audience that this is a lot of burden on people to try to figure out, you know, what companies are actually investing in farming in this way. It's not simple, but we do have to embrace the complexity of this as a solution and be curious about it and think, you know, where is this food coming from that I'm buying from this company? And how can I learn about how they're partnering with farmers to produce some of these end products? and be on a learning journey to try to find answers that hopefully will give you the confidence that they are farming in a way that is nature positive and a climate solution and the best tasting healthiest food that you could buy but it uh you know it is a journey it's not an overnight solution but it is clear that we can't continue to farm in these big monocrops and the soil is just not going to produce the food that the world needs if we continue with the large-scale agricultural farming. So you've 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 opened up so many possibilities for kind of hope and inspiration and just you know your your work is so inspiring. So you know kind of in a way just very briefly just inspire us like what gives you hope for a better future where you know regenerative agriculture just becomes agriculture, right? It just we transition, we transform society to, to really embrace nature and all that comes with it. I get inspired when I go to Sandown and it's become this three-dimensional place for me now that I, I think about what's happening under the cover crops, in the soil, in the, the dirt, you know, that I love so much as a kid. And Um, you know, my mom always used to say when I had a, if I came home clean, I had a bad day. And, and I really think about that now because I just, you know, get so excited knowing about how the soil is teeming with life and how 
the fungi and the bacteria and the earthworms and all of those things also depend on there to be a healthy wetland and bird species very close by and a forest has mushrooms in it and this interconnectedness of where we grow our food and the surrounding biodiversity and i go to sandown and i hear the birds and i you know can think about the soil and i get told about you know all the bats or owls and then take a bite of a lemon cucumber that was just picked from there and i i believe it has the highest nutrient and the most delicious taste of anywhere i could ever kind of be lucky enough to taste something from you know somewhere something from that's all this th- theoretical knowledge comes to life when i visit that place lindsay that that was just such a wonderful way to end this conversation thank you for your time today but more importantly thank you for everything that you're doing your work at sandown your work kind of inspiring so many others to take up the mantle of regenerative agriculture, circularity, and so on. So it's been a true pleasure having you on Voices of Nature, and we we hope that there's, this leads to many future collaborations. Thank you so much, Bob. I think my one parting thought is just that the circular economy and those three simple principles can unlock the way of thinking and this mindset that it did for me to start thinking about how to solve some of these big problems. And so I think of it as like a key to thinking in ways that we can regenerate nature in all different forms. And it does truly make me feel hopeful. And I hope your listeners also take that away. I'm sure they will. Thank you, Lindsay. I really appreciate it.